You're listening to the MindShift.School podcast. Welcome to the MindShift.School podcast, a conversation about the future of Christian education. Hi, this is John Huang, and I'll be your host for today's episode. For this episode, I sat down with Mitch Salerno, who is head of school at Monte Vista Christian School in Watsonville, California. Mitch is also co-author of From Gutenberg to 5G, a chapter in the book Mindshift, Catalyzing Change in Christian Education, which you can find on our website at mindshift.school. Today, we take a look into the origins of the Mindshift movement and discuss the roles and responsibilities of the educator in a world where so much information is instantly available and technological innovation moves at an unprecedented pace. Let's get into the conversation. So Mitch, you know, it's a really interesting time, a really disruptive time that we're living in. Before we talk and dive into, you know, what's going on in your school, as well as talking about the chapter, can you give us a, just a brief intro of who you are, kind of your background, you know, and then just kind of how you came to be the head of school at Monte Vista, could you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thanks for having me. And, and so, yeah, how do I, well, it's a really interesting question. How did you come, become to be the head of school at Monta Vista? I think that's a really interesting part of the introduction. I've spent the better part of 20 years, 20 plus years in, in education, primarily Christian education, whether it be Protestant or Catholic, and started as a, as a chemistry teacher. And pretty early on, actually started not even as, a, as an educator, started as a, as a chemist. And, and when I finished Wheaton College as a chemist, decided that I wanted to pursue kind of a career in education teaching chemistry. And, and from the early days, got really fortunate to be able to attend Duquesne University and do a master's in instructional technology, which back in 1999, 2000 was fairly innovative at the time. There wasn't such a thing as instructional technology. In fact, we did all of our work, believe it or not, we were creating our own LMS inside of Microsoft Word. It was a long time ago, feels only 20 years ago, but a lot has changed in those 20 years, but progressed through the years teaching into administration and and it was fortunate enough to find myself at the Master's Academy about a decade or more ago when iPads were first hitting the market and asking questions about how do you use technology? How could you possibly integrate this, this technology of an iPad into an educational curriculum, which through God's great providence brought me here to Monta Vista to visit. Monta Vista was actually the first school in the world to integrate iPad technology, although my school in Florida would probably dispute that a bit. But now that I'm here at Monta Vista, we'll, we'll let Monta Vista have credit for it since I'm the head of Monta Vista. But visited here, got to know some of the folks here. And when the former head retired, I didn't know this, but he mentioned my name as the, the person who should replace him. And so that's how I found myself here. So currently the head of school, we're about 870 students in grades 6 through 12. We are a day and a boarding school. So we've got here at Monte Vista Christian, we've got boarders, about 75 students who live in our dormitories on campus and the remaining 800 are day students from around the area. It's a really unique place, 105 acres kind of out in the countryside. Our students come to us from, from quite a distance, even our day students. And so it's a, it's a unique school with a unique history, 95 years of history. And so just mm. super thankful to be here as a part of the school. Yeah. Could you walk us through how you got involved with the mind shift process, kind of the history. I, I know you have a lot of experience for the precursor to MindShift and other conversations you've had for a long yeah. time now. Could you kind of explain your relationships and how, how did you get to become involved in the MindShift process? 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't know, you have to ask Lynn and, and Eric and Dan and others how they would categorize. I know you were part of the history that we put up there on a board one time. I know I, I would probably say one of the one of the founders, one of the, the the catalytic people in making it happen. And that wasn't, I don't want to say that with hubris. It was more just through through relationships and connections. And I've always been interested in innovation. How do you do things differently? How do mm. we change? How do we do things better? Because they just change. How do we do things better? And we were all kind of thinking around this topic of interim programs. So Eric Ellison, who folks will recognize his name from the book, he and I were it's probably about 14 years ago or so now when I was at the Master's Academy. I guess maybe about, maybe about 10 years ago. And there was, there was a, a gentleman by the name of John Keith, Wheaton Academy, where John Keith was, had been doing a program called Winterham very successfully. And some of us, myself included, were, were kind of picking that up. We're doing it. We're asking questions about how you innovate it. And so I simply asked the question to John Keith one day, what other Christian schools around the country do Winterham or Interim? Hmm. And he, he said, I don't know. He said, why don't you find out? And so I did. I found out and I would happen to be in Orlando, Florida. And I thought, let me invite all these people to Orlando, Florida, to the Masterpiece Academy in February. It's a pretty good time to invite them all to Florida. And lo and behold, about 14 or 15 schools came. And wow. we, we talked about this interim program. What do each of us do? And immediately you could feel this, this catalytic conversation beginning to happen. And before mm. the two days was over, people were saying, we need to do this again. Well, long story short, Eric and I really got connected. Even though Eric and I went to Wheaton College together, we weren't really connected at the time. We got connected and we formed an organization called CCEI, the Christian Coalition for Educational Innovation. Not even certain how we came up with the name, but we did. And we, it, it became a real thing. And for the, next, the better part of the next seven years or so, we were running meetings on Zoom. We were doing get-togethers around the country at Christian universities. And this thing was growing. And it was, you could definitely tell there were people who wanted to connect around this topic of innovation. Mm. I think that it, it kind of ran its course. Part of that was our careers. We were younger administrators at the time. Our, our careers took different paths. And now you're running a school. It's hard to manage a broader organization like that. But I remember sitting in Dallas. I think it was Dallas a couple of years back. And we were at a hotel after the CISA conference and, and Eric, Dan, Lynn, Mike Chen, and myself were just talking about some frustrations we had. And, right. and we said, basically, we either need to do this for real, or we need to just quit complaining and move on with our lives. And lo and behold, the idea of MindShift was kind of born on a, on a hotel patio in, in late in the evenings. And so I think that's where it came from. That's kind of the, the, where this whole thing started. It was just a group of people that wanted to see something different and they started talking and and, and the, the gang, that, that small group was always kind of together as a core. So I want to kind of walk the audience through the chapter that you co-wrote from Gutenberg to 5G. Could we first start out by kind of talking a little bit about you framing what, what is the wicked problem that the story from Gutenberg to 5G describes? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the title from Gutenberg to 5G was not the original title that I was given to write on. Actually, the title that came to me from Lynn and from, from the folks was from Gutenberg to Google. And I, I pushed back and I, I asked, I said, can I adjust the title, please? Because as I was being asked to write this book or write this chapter in the book, it was already foreseeable that there was another shift that was on the horizon, mm -hmm. right? And so writing a chapter from Gutenberg to Google would have been like writing about the past. And I wanted to write about the future. And so Lynn and, and Dan and Eric graciously allowed me to shift it to a focus of from, from Gutenberg to 5G. So intentionally, the chapter is a bit out of reach. 
right? In a sense, there was this, there's, there's, a, there's a twofold thing going on in the chapter. What happens when you switch from kind of a, a, a largely written communication to a, a largely digital communication, but you extend that out into spaces where, where accessibility and speed are, are moving at such a rapid pace that things that we can't even think about now mm-hmm. are actually possible. So there's an aspirational piece to it. And I think there's an, another piece to it, which was just by way of the introduction, you can see looking back, we in the sense of the church and the gospel has always embraced technological in, innovations for the sake of the gospel. And so that was why we started with, with the story of, of Johann Hus and, and, and someone who would be unknown and how that connected to Martin Luther, because the, the main difference between those two gentlemen, and we can dive into this if you're interested, was not their ideas. Hmm. The main difference was the, the means by which their ideas could be, could be propagated about the world. That was the difference between the two guys. Wow. Let's actually, it would be really helpful for people to hear uh, kind of your version of the story. I know there's a condensed, very, very tight presentation of that story, but could you just tell that story of, of you know, the early Protestant reformers and people who've gone through that yeah. story and how technology has helped that start the Enlightenment as well as the Reformation and made that a possibility? Could you just tell that story in your words? Yeah. So you have Johann, John Hus, whatever his, his couple variations of his name. But, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was an early 15th century thinker in Bavaria. And, and he he really was adamant against the, the, the injustices within the Roman Catholic Church at the time, mm-hmm. not unlike what Martin Luther was suggesting years later. And, and so he was and he I believe I don't know if we write about it in here. I believe he I think it was Wycliffe. I'm pretty sure it was Wycliffe. He, I, I might be wrong. I'm not uh, totally on, on my history right now. But it, anyway, he was he had a key thought and he was adamantly preaching that thought in his his hometown. Hmm. And he caught the attention of Rome and, and they wanted to stifle him. Mm-hmm. And so but at that in those days, there was no real way to propagate your thinking other than orally sharing your thinking because there was no printing press at the time. So so ideas were transmitted, written, orally communicated, so forth and so on. And so Rome was basically able to, to snuff him out by mm. literally snuffing him out. But his ideas were, were what we now call pre-Reformation, right? He was, he was one of the, the pre-Reformation thinkers. But almost 100 years prior to Martin Luther, he was thinking those same thoughts. Why, wow. did, they not, why did they not spread? Mm. They didn't spread because there was not a means by which they could spread. There was no fuel through which they could spread to the masses. You fast forward 100 years, when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses on the wall, what really drove the Reformation, and I don't know that we mentioned it in the book, but I think it was within a couple of months. Within a couple of months, people had taken his 95 theses, they had printed them, yeah. and they had distributed them all over, all over Europe. Hmm. And so his ideas spread like, like gasoline on a fire throughout Europe, and they became the catalyst for the Reformation, which will then follow with Zwingli and Calvin and others who will come, come right behind him. What's the difference? Hoos was thinking the same thing. Mm. Hoos did not have the means of transmission. And so, and Luther was brilliant. I'm not suggesting by any way to devalue Luther right. or to overextend Hoos's influence. But I, I, in, in preparing for the chapter, I often wonder if, if the printing press had been invented Right. Or there had been a means of propagation of Hus's idea. Might we be talking about the Hussian church, not the Lutheran church? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think that 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 timing makes a difference. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. 
I, I mean, I read somewhere that Luther's disciples would outprint the Catholics five to one. The Catholics quickly adopted the printing press as well, but they were just much more prolific in sharing the ideas and you know, the, the essentially the sermons and just printed out tracts that they would just print it five times more than the Catholics and which Correct. really helped in the distribution of these ideas, you know, in a, in a wide way. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So that, that's a really, really interesting kind of idea that ideas need technology or different paradigm shifts to enable it to be able to spread widely and whatnot. But, you know, we've now lived in this Gutenberg age for about 500 years and we've seen new transmission or distribution channels like you know, radio and VHS and TV and, you know, cable and, and now the internet and more, you know, we're talking about a 5G age. So as we kind of make a, you know, contrast, what, what do you think is the difference between what's possible in the near future in a 5G age versus a Gutenberg age in terms of what, what would you say are the main differences in that, you know, their technology. So what's the difference between a print-based thing versus a, I guess a digital slash you know, kind of a 5G technology. What, what is the difference yeah. in your mind? Well, well, 5G hasn't happened yet, so I'm going to speculate a bit, but I'm going to use even our modern times. And, and we covenant at the beginning, we weren't going to talk too much about the current situation that we're in, but I think the current situation we're in provides an interesting example of what it is that's different between a Gutenberg and a, and a, and a 5G type yeah. of world. And, and that's this idea of fake news, right? This idea of fake news has kind of, has been proliferated here in the last presidential cycle into the cycle that we're in now. We, you and I are recording this during the COVID crisis. And it, one of the things that's most amazing to me about 5G or digital information age is that the information, one, happens instantaneously. And two, the speed and rate in which it happens has an impact on the veracity of the information. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Is that we now in a modern world have to deal not just with, hey, I read this, but who put it out? Mm. Where are the sources that are verifiable in this? And the speed at which information gets turned has created a new problem, right? right. It, it's a problem of, of rapid iteration of information. And I think the main difference, there's a positive side of that and a negative side of that, mm -hmm. is that we can, unlike Luther, where it took three months to, to put his ideas around Europe, now we can put, we can put an idea around Europe in 20 seconds, yeah. right? Or less. Even the podcast or this, this interview we're doing is going to get broadcast to a mass group of people really quickly. Yeah. But it also brings with it those challenges that information has to be vetted really quickly because mistruths can be moved very quickly as well. I think the main difference is just one that we've always known is just speed. So even if you take Rex Miller's book, and I forget the title of it, where he goes through the, the stages of communication. From, from Gutenberg on into the radio age, the TV age, the computer age, the main difference is just the speed at which this information is coming at us, right? Mm. It, it's very, very, very quick. And I think that's one of the adaptability pieces that I think Christian education and why, we, why this chapter is in the MindShift book is that, that I think the, and this is what makes a lot of people uncomfortable, is, is the required rate of change, the required rate of iteration. Hmm. It, it, it's very, very, very quick. And, and we can tie that to the COVID situation if you'd like. There's some of that happening right now in our modern world, which is fascinating to watch, yeah. quite honestly, when it relates to education. But I think that's the main difference, is just mm. the pace. It might, you can take 50 years in the mid 1500s or 100 years to change something where that change now is happening potentially in a, a six week cycle, 
right? What do you think is the main cause that delayed things in the past in the Gutenberg or even intermediate stages? Why did it take so long versus now? Are there, are there specific things that stand out to you as reasons of why it was slower, other than the fact that it just you had to print it and go through the process? Are there any other elements that might potentially slow it you know, down or speed it yeah, up? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, I'm speculating now. Obviously, we weren't living back then. I'm just trying to even extrapolate in my own lifetime as someone who's been in my mid-40s for what yeah. it was like even when I was, say, in high school relative to, to today. I, the, the, the differences for me are the, the pace at which we can gain all kinds of information. So for example, this morning I woke up and, and I hop on Flipboard, which is just my news aggregator of choice. And, and, and I'm, I'm flipping and scrolling through news stories. You know, the, the volume of, of information that I can have at my fingertips is so immense. The problem is I don't know how much of it's true. Does that make sense? Like I have to really right. vet those sources now. But oh. I, I, think that, I think that it's just the, the amount of information and how quickly we can get information from different parts of the world. Right. So, you know, I was reflecting on during this time of COVID, I've got educator friends from around the globe in Australia and Spain and England and South mm. Korea and Canada and, and China and other places. And as I talk to them, we're all living a common reality. If you would go back even a couple hundred years ago, one, I don't know that we'd be living a common reality. And two, we wouldn't be able to communicate that to each other instantaneously as we do now. Wow. I, this is, my mind's racing now kind of with what you're saying. In, in terms of some of the things, you know, happening in the past, it seems like, you know, the, the, the speed may have been affected by the kind of permissions that we used to get from gatekeepers in the past that we essentially don't have anymore. Maybe that's why we have more fake news possible because instead of being vetted and going through a process that, that had various different people you had to get through before you could publish a book or you could get content in people's hands, it seems like the, the gatekeepers have been all removed and, and we're seeing both the positives and absolutely the negatives of that in this, in this world. What do you see as things that educators and administrators and you know, just Christian education and schools in general, how do they take that information? Right, that the fact that it is a you know incoming five G and things are happening fast and iterating, so what? Like, how do I deal with that? Or what? What are some yeah. things that you would recommend they keep an yeah. eye on or think about? Yeah, I think one of the things you just use a great word gatekeeper. So if you think about a classroom having a gatekeeper yeah. or a school having a gatekeeper, it would have yeah. been the the people that control curriculum or control how you learn or what you learn, right? And so I think one of the main questions that's being asked now, and you're seeing it again, even in the midst of what we're dealing with in our present time when we record this, is that there's a lot of questions about who's the gatekeeper yeah. and what they allow to occur and when they allow it to occur. And so I think the big question from Gutenberg to 5G is that, and I, I don't know your age, but I know I went to school in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, graduating high school in the early 90s and then in university through the mid 90s we relied on our instructors to be the gatekeepers of information for us. They right. held the keys as to where we went and when we went there, largely just because we couldn't get access to things, right? right. It wasn't easy to get, right. I should say, it. it was easier compared to generations prior, but compared to what we're dealing with now, when we look back, All right. it, was, it was a much different information age <laughs> yep. than it is today. You fast forward here into to 2020 when we're recording this, and if we look forward to 2030, I think the main difference is that our students and as people in general 
those gatekeepers, I love the language you just used, those gatekeepers have been shifted and removed, mm. right? And so, and so I think education and Christian educators as a whole have to begin to ask questions when the gatekeepers, when you are no longer the gatekeeper, right? how do you educate students in that world and how do we help them navigate a world that, that is, is beautiful in the sense that you and I can create content together and we don't have to ask for permission to no. create this content, right? But, but, but the content could be used for nefarious reasons or it could be used for, for positive reasons. And I think that's what we wrestle with as we move forward. And, and the people that, that I see that want to put the brakes on or still stay the gatekeepers is that there is a large mistrust of what will happen if we open it up. That's one side. And then the other side is they see themselves as being obsolete because the only role they see themselves in is as gatekeeper. Right. And if it, and they're having trouble redefining their own role. Hmm. If I can't be gatekeeper, then what do I do? Am I not needed? Am I am I unimportant? And and you know we can dive down that road. The answer is no. They're still very important, right? In fact, I would argue more important now than we might have ever been as educators and as leaders. Can you expand um, on that a little bit more? I mean, like in terms yeah. of you know you're saying you know the school is no longer the only source of information that you can, I mean, the, the problem is not where do I find information? It's not, the internet right. has already kind of allows us to do that. Right. You're saying that the educators have even the greater role now uh, that, that that traditional role has in the role of being a gatekeeper as well as being the sole source of truth for many people that has been removed. How does that change for you? Even as you think about your own school and how you want to teach your students, how does that change things? Yes. Well, I know in my, in my school, we're in the process of, and I don't want to, this isn't about Monta Vista Christian, but I think our current trajectory and journey illuminates this a bit. We're, we're on, on, a, on a direction to, to, be, to become an IB school, an international baccalaureate school. And one of the reasons is, is that we've begun asking questions over the course of the last year. What does it mean to learn? What does it mean to be a learner? And so we're trying to answer that question. And what we're finding is we believe that learning is important. And that learners understanding the process of learning is critical. And I think that we're no longer the gatekeeper of content in the sense that you must learn this, but I do think we are the gatekeeper of learning. And I think that if we shift our attention away from what specifically do you know to how do we teach you to learn whatever it is that you want to know, if we can become the gatekeeper of that process, whether it's metacognitive, whether it's whether it's, it's self-reflective, whatever it might be, if we can help you become a learner and understand how to learn and, and really even be intuitive in your learning, we've set you up in this modern world to be somebody who can be successful because we know, we say we know, we think that what's going to happen in the years to come is that if this iterative process of change is as rapid as I think it's going to be, mm -hmm. then being a learner and understanding how to learn is going to be critical. Right. It's almost like it's not, you know, it's not the content. It's learning how to be a problem solver, learning how to yeah. know how to approach solving the problems and learn. That's amazing. One of the things I've noticed is that there's, there still seems to be people who want to get permission or direction on what to do per se, or they're asking for permission to innovate, permission to prototype, permission to start things. Can you reflect on that a little bit of what educators need to kind of think about as they approach the you know the, the this process of innovation this process of trying to tackle and solve problems 
what are some of the things that you know that they need to keep in mind you know now that there aren't any gatekeepers there never was any gatekeepers around christian education yeah. in general and how to solve problems yeah. in there that's a great question i think let, let, let's use today if, if i'm if i might in our, in our, our literal current situation i think is a, a living example of what you just asked is in a matter of in a matter of three weeks the whole of christian education the whole of education literally globally this isn't just here in the states this is globally by and large as a result of the the covid virus has been 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 literally shoved into this idea of remote or distance learning mm -hmm. right and it has been absolutely fascinating to watch the response because when i had someone tell me recently that innovation happens when parameters are constrained and if you want to lead in innovation you don't change minds you change parameters you change mm -hmm. constraints and if you change constraints you will force people to innovate it's just the very definition of how innovation happens well mm -hmm. what's happened in the last three weeks has been exactly that is all of a sudden schools that would have had no desire to do what we're doing now right are forced to think about how they're going to deliver their core service meet the needs of their students and people by virtue of constraints being shifted. Mm -hmm. I think one of the greatest things that MindShift can do, if you think about that, is, is that we can encourage people to change the constraints on their systems. And, and if we do that, and we can be a catalyst, we can be an encouragement, we can be someone who says, hey, think about this differently. I think that's how you, you give people not just permission, but almost a mandate to innovate because you, you, they have to navigate new constraints. And I think mm -hmm. when I see places that won't innovate or, or struggle to innovate, one of the reasons they struggle is they actually aren't willing to adjust the constraints. They take certain constraints as gospel, not okay. trying to confuse Christian gospel to right, right. the word gospel, they, they, a, a, fixed, a fixed line. And because they have certain fixed lines, people don't have to navigate in certain ways if they would just adjust those lines. And, and those constraints, they could really push innovation in a different way. Are there any other kind of cultural elements of, around innovation and the culture of your school and leadership that innovators need to be very you know, aware of and, and intentionally design so that you can one, change the constraints and define what they are, but also what are some other things you would define as integral into the culture so that innovation can happen? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's all sorts of things that, that have already been written on change management and the management of this innovation process. I think the, the one is, is just one that comes to mind right out of the gate is creating a culture of feedback and communication, mm -hmm. one that allows for honest and open dialogue. And that is, that's tricky. That is not something that, that can, can happen overnight. In other words, building a culture of trust because innovation requires risk-taking. It requires right. people trying things and failing. It mm -hmm. requires a, a culture of grace. For example, when we go to this, the current situation related to COVID and we're asking teachers literally almost overnight to switch from a brick and mortar school to a distance learning school, there's an element of grace in there that we, we've changed the constraints, but we also have to be gracious as they move. And I've seen, for example, from our faculty here, just a remarkable amount of innovation and in trying new things because the fear of failure has been removed because of the immediacy of the need, Yes. the willingness to try and fail. Yeah. It's okay because yeah. we have to do this. We don't have a choice, right? Yeah. I think the, the, the difficult thing is creating that sense of urgency, that sense of, of protection and care and love for people 
but also that sense of urgency. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, but in a, in a non-urgent situation like the one we're in now, those are mm -hmm. very, very difficult mm -hmm. to replicate and, and to create if you're not careful. So I think that's one is, is, a, is a culture of trust. Two, I think, I, I just think you have to, as a leader, you've got to be, you, you need to be somebody who has the ability to, to take criticism and weather the storm because you've heard about it or read about it, this idea of an implementation dip. When you first put something in, often the quality will go down before it goes back up again. And there's those early, I think people who aren't comfortable, leaders who are not comfortable leading through implementation dips really could struggle in leading change or leading innovation because it doesn't always, when you change constraints and you change the system, you often, the system often breaks down a little bit before it improves. Yeah. And, and you have to get used to that process and be willing to lead through that process and have people who understand that process on your team or else a lot of people get about four or five weeks in to an innovation and then they back out. I'll give you a really funny story with that. We changed our car line here at school. Simple, how cars progress through our parking lot to drop okay. off kids. First two days that we did it, it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> I mean, an absolute disaster. Because we change the constraints on people's long ingrained habits of how they navigate our campus, right? And so what was interesting was in the first two days, I had team members saying, we have to go back to the old way. I had parents saying, we have to go back to the old way. And I'm just stubborn enough now to stay the course, stay the course, iterate, make it better, small improvements. It took about two weeks, just constant people. It sucks. It's terrible. You know, that kind of stuff. After about two weeks, it became the new normal. Here we are two years later, and I still have people saying, this is the best car line I've ever been in. This is awesome. Like, they don't even remember the old one, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just, this one's fantastic. And I, I joked with my team, I said, if we tried to change what we had right now, we'd go through that same two week period of just mm -hmm. angst and anxiety and frustration. And I want to go back almost like that Egypt moment using a, using a, a, a wilderness moment for the Egyptians. Like just take me back to Egypt. It was mm -hmm. terrible, but I at least knew what it was. Yeah. Right. I think just leading through those times and, and, and kind of getting enough calluses and enough sensitivity to know the difference between when you're, when your change is, is an implementation dip and when it's something that's really, it really isn't good. Right? right. And I think that's, that's something I think people have to be able to, to learn to, to, to figure out. So one of the things that there's a couple of things around mentoring slash bringing in people in the process that really stood out to me for people to have thick skin or to, to kind of be constantly doubted, you know, we talk about a personality type for maybe innovators or some things that would help leaders be better innovators. What are, are there anything that you would share with younger innovators or, or, or not just even younger, but administrators who are looking to bring in change and they're going to get a lot of attack slash doubt slash, you know, pushback of changes that they're suggesting. How do you, how do you deal with something like that when people are doubting you and you feel alone and you know you're you're trying to bring something make it happen and nobody believes you yeah it's a really good question it's something I, I ask myself often i mean i've asked myself that even in in our journey to international baccalaureate right mm. and I, I think the first that comes to mind is just the i think it's out of joshua just be strong and courageous is number one i think that if especially in Christian education, if your eyes are on Christ and you're leading from, from a, a Christ-centered perspective and you're not, you're not sliding away from this mission of a Christ-centered drive, then I think then one, be confident in that. Two, something that's always motivated me and, and always kept me moving is 
I, I like to think five, 10 years out in the future and say, what, what would the kids that, that are in my school now or mm. the people, anybody five or 10 years out, what's the reality going to be like? And can I begin to try to create that now? And I think that, that for me provides strength because hmm. if you're a visionary and you can see something, even this idea, you used the word in one of our meetings recently of, of prophetic. If you can see and project what a, a, a preferred future might look like, then I will take criticism today knowing that if I've got the right counsel, if I'm in the right place, then, then more than likely this idea will be right. And even though people in today's thinking don't get it, people out then, out in the future will get it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I would say to the younger innovator, to someone who wants to innovate, this is where confidence comes in. This is not arrogance, but it's confidence. And if you believe in the thing that you're trying to create, if you can see it, then, then just press on because you, you, you actually are crazy. You, you see something that doesn't yet exist and you're trying to call it into existence. If, if everybody around you said, oh, that's obvious, let's do it, then you're not really prophetic and you're not really innovative. You're just doing, at that point, you're almost being compelled to do what's required. Does that oh, make sense? Yeah. It, in a sense, kind of where we are again to our current cultural moment, any leader who's now currently leading their institution through remote learning is not an innovator. They're, they're a reactor because the circumstances have so changed that they have to do it. And, and many of them, I don't want to be ignorant here, aren't even doing it well because they weren't prepared for what was to come. And there are others who are already saying, ah, we've been waiting for this. Like this is, this is a moment to, to and some of us, actually, I know in my school, we, we were preparing two or three weeks prior to this happening because we had already had the seeds in the ground for this type of a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. So th th that would be my advice is just, hmm. if people think you're crazy, then you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> like that actually is one of the tests to let you know that you're actually innovating, yeah. right? Yeah. If everyone thinks you're normal, then you're not innovating. You're, you're just, you're with everybody else. So how do you come overcome fear? Because one of the goals is for innovators in their own context to go and unleash innovation and do a mind shift locally in their schools and in their kind of regions and their cities. But when their mortgage is on the line, they, are, they have a board breathing down their, their neck and they have a lot of things yeah. going on. You know, our, our, our prayer and our hope is that we are able to inspire and mentor and invite more people into the process so that there, there could be more innovation happening locally in their own schools and whatnot. Yeah. How, how do we unleash innovation in different areas? Boy, it's a great question. I think even, again, I, I, don't, I, I know we said we weren't going to talk on these, on these present times, but I think these present times provide a really huge, important reality hmm. to answer your question right? Is that people will say, I can't innovate because I'm afraid I might lose my job or my school might close. Yeah. And you can even tell I've changed my posture. I'm like sitting forward now, leaning into the camera because this one actually is deeply personal to me. Mm. Yeah. That's, that, that's a risk. It's a risk. When you innovate, you, you might not be successful. But in our current situation, we're finding out that the people who are innovating and the people who didn't innovate, there are circumstances outside of our control that we cannot change. And there are many people worried now with the economic situation around the globe here in 2020. What does that mean for our organizations? And many organizations, John, are going to be closed. 
whether yeah. they tried to innovate or didn't innovate, they're going to be closed. I would argue, if you look back, the last time we had a Great Depression, I mean, perhaps even out of the, the most recent recession that we had, the folks that come out of these times doing well are the folks who can rethink inside of cataclysmic mammoth change. They're able to rethink and restart in, in unique ways. Hmm. And that's not something you learn overnight. That's something you have to practice. Hmm. Go back to that thing that we're trying to teach our kids to learn how to learn. If you haven't taught yourself how to learn and take risks as a leader, you can't just muster that confidence out of nowhere. You're going to have to go somewhere to, to learn that. And I think what you're going to find even in these current times is a lot of folks are going to be saying, I need to innovate, but I don't know how. I'm scared. Right. Right. And you know what? Their, their jobs, their livelihoods, I don't mean to be crass, but it's already on the line. Mm-hmm. And so if we take this back from a spiritual sense, I just heard one of my good friends from college yesterday. He's a pastor in Delaware, and I listened to his sermon yesterday out of Matthew. You know, don't be anxious about anything. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. I think the key is take care of your business today. Innovate, learn, grow today. And there are circumstances that we just can't control. God in his great providence is doing some amazing things around his globe. He's, he's advancing his kingdom around the globe. And I think when you take this self-protectionist, I need to take care of myself today, you're really denying the broader work in God's great providence of how he moves about history. So I don't mean to be overly theological in that response, but to me, I don't think it's worth worrying about things like, um, am I going to lose my job? Because I, I mean, it's honestly, my board might see this someday. If I'm not at Monta Vista, there's a place for me in the kingdom and I will have an income and I will be taken care of. Does that make mm, sense? Yeah. God feeds the birds. He, he clothes the flowers. He, he's going to take care of me too. So I need to listen to him. And if that means innovating and pushing the boundaries, then we need to do that because that's how the gospel advances. And that's the ultimate theme of that chapter is how do you use whatever tools God's given you for the advancement of his kingdom? Well, with that, thank you for your time today. I think this has been really enlightening and I hope to continue the conversation where we, we continue to explore themes of innovation and themes of how technology is changing the landscape and things that we should think about as leaders and we'll have to do future interviews and continue the conversation multiple times. So I'm, I'm going to be coming and circling back and we'll go from All there. Right. Well, well, I appreciate it, John. Thank you for so much for taking the time with me. It was really fun. And I, I hope those who listen or watch can be inspired to really advance the kingdom through, through, through their work. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for the MindShift.School podcast. Again, you can find the book MindShift, Catalyzing Change in Christian Education on our website at MindShift.School. Make sure to share this episode with anyone who might be interested in this topic or leave a review on iTunes. That helps us a lot. We share interesting and useful resources on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. So be sure to check us out there and come back next time for more conversations like this. Thanks for listening. This was the MindShift.School podcast.